So we're, we're back with the second part of our interview, um, which I guess we're going to get more specific details when it comes to bioethical choices with the newborns. So already in class, we've been looking a lot at the status of the embryo, uh, IVF, um, genetic diagnosis of the embryos before they're implanted. And so sort of moving on, we've looked a lot at pregnancy and um, the different issues that women face. But I like to sort of talk about an area which, in discussing this the other day, I realized as a priest, you're going to deal on occasion with, let's say, ectopic pregnancy or people who are struggling with IVF or want to choose that. You deal with a lot of stuff at the end of life. But really, most of a lot of my experience has been with women who are pregnant and they have this diagnosis the child may have some genetic uh, disease or things that happen after um, and choices that couples need to make, choices that doctors need to make, the role of the priest. And so you've had years of experience in that. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know, like, to be able to maybe talk a little bit about some stories uh, that you've experienced, some choices you've had to make. and and what kind of ethical principles that maybe you can derive from it. So I don't even, I don't even know. Let's, let's start with, um, I guess, a situation maybe where a woman is pregnant, comes to you, and then through testing you find out that the child has some genetic disorder and, and the struggles that, that they face. How do you deal with it as a doctor? Yeah, it's you know, oftentimes we'll, we'll see, you know, moms prenatally, they'll come with, with a diagnosis and they'll come to our office and, you know, say, hey, what are the options for the baby? What's the, you know, the chances is, is kind of what they always want to know, you know. Chances and then is the baby going to be normal? You know, those are the biggest questions I often get. And so um, kind of specifically, you know, I can think of different times where, where that's happened. Um, I think my very first experience of, with that was... Um, in Nashville when I was a fellow, I was thinking my second year. Um, there was a couple, uh, it was it was actually, a, it was a baby of IVF, it was a same-sex couple uh, that had come in uh, with a baby that had a diagnosis that was, um, uh, it's called Angelman syndrome, so it was, you know, the baby's going to have a lot of developmental issues, have a slightly shorter lifespan, but, but very, you know, developmentally impaired uh, life, the way their life, his life was going to be. It was going to be very, uh, very challenging, special mm-hmm. needs. And on top of that, the baby had a heart defect, and, and, and so it was a repairable heart defect. But um, um, they didn't know that part before the diagnosis. They just knew that the baby had this syndrome. And so we, we talked about it, and they said, "Well, you know, um, we're going to just, you know, kind of have the baby, and we'll see what what happens after that, and, and we'll kind of just take it one step at a time." So we did, and then you know. The baby was born slightly premature, uh, very small, very growth restricted, needed a ventilator, and then um, come to find out the baby has a has a heart defect that that needs to be repaired. And, mm-hmm. and so the cardiologist had a, had a had a talk with the parents and or, you know these, this couple, and, and and they were just like, well, if he's going to have this this quality of life, we don't want him. We just want to take him home. We don't want him to have the surgery. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was a bit. I remember. You know, even even at Vanderbilt, you know, kind of a non, you know, you know, it wasn't a a religious school by any means, um, and and it, it kind of caused a big uproar. A lot of the attendings that I was working with were unwilling to to participate in that to say, you know, well, 
we know this baby's going to die if we send him home with this heart defect. He, he has, you know, there, there's no other way that this will play out. Once, once the physiology changes in the next two months, two to three months, um, he will turn blue and then he will die at home. And, and, um, um, and so some of the attendings are like, well, I, I can't participate in that. You know, I remember there was one, he was Catholic, he was actually from South America. He's like, I, I will not care for this. I cannot put my name on this chart. I cannot be part of this care of this baby. If if they choose not they to choose have, not to, to So to they saw the, the, the responsibility as doctors to perform the surgery to care for mm-hmm. for this this life. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the parents were, were weighing the quality of his life more than, you know, the repairability of, of what he had. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so it was it was it was my first kind of introduction into the ethics of, of those sort of things and so it was uh, it was very eye-opening for me. That's when I started to read more about those choices and, and kind of what, what, what it all means and what, what it is to have futility of care and what is not futility of care for, for, for a baby. Well, could you explain a little bit of that? I mean, Yeah, yeah. I mean, essentially, at least especially for a baby, you look at what's futile and what's not futile. And when you make a treatment for a baby, say you put a baby on a breathing machine, uh, breathing machine the ultimate goal is for that baby to come off that breathing machine. It's not going to be the long-term... Um, care of that baby it's 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 a it's a way to get to the next phase of the baby's care mm-hmm. um, when it becomes futile is when that breathing machine becomes dependent and we can't move to the next stage of care then you say okay then we're stuck here this is you know there's a futility in this mode of, of treatment for this baby this ventilator is keeping this baby alive and it's not allowing us to to, to move to the next phase you know do we need to have a discussion about where we need to go from here. You know, mm-hmm. Is this still something we want to continue to do after so many months, years, or whatever? But that's going to be up to the prudential decision, ultimately, of the doctors, mm-hmm. and it's going to be almost, not say different in every case, but there are going to be different factors that are yeah. going to be addressed in every case. Yeah, there's a lot of different factors as, as far as, you know, will, you know, in several years, will the baby, able, the baby be able to come off a ventilator? Do we have to put a tracheostomy into the baby and let the breathing machine use breathe for the baby for the first several years and then will will they allow, you know be able to breathe at that point or is there some neurologic or brain condition that allows them never to breathe on their own mm-hmm. you know uh, when they're not ever ever able to breathe on their own you know is that futility of care can you say okay you know can can we remove that care mm-hmm. so. so i'm sure now you often find like this same sex couple you mentioned couples who in the womb, there's a diagnosis of some type of issue that would allow or will lead the child to be special needs or more dependent. Do you often encounter women who were tempted with abortion? Yes. Oh, yes. Um, you know, I'll come in. Uh, moms will come in and tell me, you know, uh, the, the screening tests are telling me the baby has trisomy 21 and they're giving me the option to have an early abortion. What should I do? And I always tell them, you know, First of all, it's a screening test. It's not 100%. You know, there's always, there's many cases where I see these moms that have these positive screening tests come out and, and the baby comes out and the baby doesn't really look like the baby has trisomy 21 at all to me. Uh, still do the testing and, and, and we do and, and, and usually we'll confirm that it doesn't have trisomy 21. So so I, I try not to, to tell them to not rely on the, the prenatal diagnosis as much as the postnatal diagnosis mm-hmm. or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's it's not a hundred percent. It's a tool. A, it's a tool to kind of give you an idea, uh, but I've had had parents say, you know, well, the parents want me to have an abortion, and I'm just not going to do it. 
um, and then the baby's born and I don't see it, um, and then so they're thankful for that. Um, and there are sometimes in cases where, you know, actually just this past week, a, a parent said, you know, there's a prenatal suspicion that I had trisomy 21, and the baby's born, and I said, well, it, it looks like the baby has trisomy mm-hmm. 21, and, and they're like, well, you know, it, this whole time has given us a chance to to come to terms with that, and we're you know, we're okay with that, you know, that there's there's that that's okay, and so they're very loving and caring for that child, and so so that that that's been um, you know that that's been usually my experience. Uh, you know, there's been some occasions I've heard of other neonatologists that the parents aren't at that open at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that um, one of my friends and one of my neonatologist friends in Nashville, you know, he actually adopted a child out of the NICU because the parents didn't want him because they were really, yeah, yeah, because they, he, he had, um, you know, he was very premature and they felt like he wasn't going to be normal. Um, and that he wasn't going to you know, turn out to be the football player that they wanted him to be. And so they, they left him in the NICU and he, he, and, he and his wife adopted him and he's, He's fine now. He's a karate instructor. <laughs> Does that happen often of parents leaving their children in the NICU? Not often. Okay. Not very often. So, okay, in the NICU, um, I've, I, as a priest over the years, have had chances to visit often, I guess, with a lot of it are children who maybe were born prematurely. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about viability yeah. uh, and the way, you know, a premature birth, uh, what is the earliest? What is the the science now, and how has that evolved in the years that you you've been yeah. practicing? Yeah, when I when I first started, when we were interns back in pediatrics together, um, you know, uh, having a baby survive that was 25 weeks was was considered almost miraculous at that point with the mm-hmm. technology and, and the things we had at that point. 25 weeks was uh, gestational age was considered, you know, we were doing really good at that point to be able to uh, help babies survive at 25 weeks. Uh, fast forward to when I actually did my fellowship, it was, you know, uh, and finishing my fellowship, it, it was, you know, 24 weeks, then 23 weeks, and, and, you know, survivability at 23 weeks at that point was anywhere from 5 to 18 percent, depending on the size of the baby, um, and then a couple other factors, you know, gender, mother gets treatment before, and things like that. Um, so 5 to 18 percent, so it was, it was not zero, but it was, you know, it was small, it was slim, uh, especially if the baby was small. Um, and so, um, so now, uh, you know, even now that I've been practicing for a little while now, since 20, uh, 2006, yeah, 2006. So since 2006, it's probably about now it still ranges from five to maybe 30%. Uh, so mm-hmm. the ranges have become wider, uh, with a little bit more technology that we have a little bit more advanced breathing, uh, technologies that we are able to, uh, utilize in the NICU now, some medications and, and interventions that um, 22 weeks is still kind of considered very gray uh, as far as uh, interventions for babies at mm-hmm. that size because they're so small. Um, developmentally, you know, neurologically, developmentally, they're they're very, you know, uh, it's a week behind, but it's still it's it, there's a significant amount of growth that's going on at that point in the lungs and in the brain. Um, so the range is for that is about five to eight percent right now, depending on, on the size of the baby and things. So, so only really the, the large hospitals that have the equipment for babies that size are really doing those types of things. You know, Texas Children's, uh, some, some on the East Coast, Atlanta, uh, a lot more in the, in the Northeast, you know, New York and whatnot, they'll, they'll resuscitate babies at 22 weeks and um, it's, it's risky, you know, it's, the survival's pretty small, but they'll do it. 
and a little more on the west coast. So there's kind of spots. In the south, it's not as common just because of, um, I guess, socioeconomic issues and access to the equipment uh, and, and, and whatnot. And so, just saying that, though, it makes me think in a lot of those larger areas, there often are, there's a, a group of individuals, voters, who are going to be more highly concentrated to be pro-abortion mm-hmm. or pro-reproductive rights, yet right. there are also yes. the areas where there's more of a, a push and a willingness mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. spend technology to save lives. Have you ever re- reflected on that, mm-hmm. of how we can put so much inner energy as a culture and society, two different sides, to either remove life on one side, but also to save life? Have you ever known reflect on that dichotomy oh yeah I see it a lot you know like I said I'll see the the parents you know um, just just right now you know I'm taking care of a baby who the mom you know was refusing a c-section at 24 weeks where you know the survivability is fairly good and and so we recommended we like we really should be doing something for this baby and she did not want us to do anything for it there are a lot of nurses in the in the in the labor and delivery unit that were like I can't I can't be part of this this is wrong 24 weeks we have to do something for the baby um, but the parents were refusing it. Um, long story short, we fast forward, she starts to have a lot of trouble at delivery and, and they have to do an emergency C-section and she even refuses the C-section to save this baby's life, knowing you know, that this baby will die if we don't intervene and do a C-section uh, immediately. Um, so um, she refuses and then ultimately while they're trying to do the C-section, the baby's born naturally um, and, and so it's very uncontrolled circumstances, very kind of chaotic environment that this baby was born into, but the baby was born. And so now these parents are, are wanting everything done for their child now. You know, now it's like, you know, is he going to be okay? Is he going to be normal? Is he going to be okay? Every single day that question comes from them. And I'm like, well, I, I don't know. You know, he's, he's 24 weeks. He's, he's making progress. He's very high risk for having problems as he gets older, but I can't promise you that he's going to be normal when he's, when he's, when he's, you know, five years old or 10 years old or 15 years old. Um, he, he, there will be some consequences. I just don't know what those are yet because um, that, that's usually the issue. You have to kind of see them mature after they get older. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so those are the parents that are the ones that usually, the ones that are kind of come with that pro-abortion kind of mentality are the ones that want you to do everything and are really kind of wanting to have that perfect child. And if they don't have that perfect child, you know, they're, they're really upset. Mm-hmm. So you're, you, so I, I see that often, you know, very often. You know, the parents are pro, you know, pro-life, and they say this is God's will, and I'll just take whatever. They're, they're so much at peace in the NICU. You know, mm-hmm. they they they're seeing their baby hooked up to all these ventilators and things, and it's not easy for them. You know, as parents of babies in the NICU ourselves, you know, it's just it's not easy to see your child that way. But um, but they're at peace knowing, you know, they're gonna love them no matter what they are when they get older. Mm-hmm. because of this because you know this is just going to be that this child's going to be another addition to their family and he's going to help them grow as a family and so i see those families come back to me and you know they even if the baby does have a lot of problems they're, they're, they're like you know I, I don't regret in doing any of this for my child you know this you know he's brought this child's brought so much love and, and you know respect and everything into our family that we wouldn't have if we didn't have this special needs mm-hmm. child um so so yeah I would imagine that there might be some doctors, as we sort of alluded to, that would say, you know, if you have this child uh, because of these different conditions, will have a terrible quality of life and will only live for a week or two. But in your experience, how many 
cases, maybe you thought that, or other doctors thought that, but over the course of after the birth, weeks, whatnot, that are there any almost like miraculous healings or or, oh, yeah. or things that that really make you doubt that that's almost ever the case? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the things I always tell parents. You know, there's so many babies I see in the NICU that are just clinging to life from day to day, and I'm like, how is this baby going to be normal? And then they come back to me a year later, two years later, and they show me this toddler that looks completely normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just you just had one recently that we had in common. You know that. Um, he had a brain issue, and, and we thought he was going to need a shunt, and, and you know have spinal fluid build up in his brain that makes him really high risk to have developmental issues and not be normal as he grows. And I see this mom in the hospital fairly often, once every couple of weeks, uh, because she's in there in the hospital a lot as, as in a she's she works there, and so I see her, and so she shows me pictures, and the baby looks completely normal, and and by all reports I've gotten from the de- developmental specialists that see him that he's doing quite well, you know, mm-hmm. that, 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 that you would never know that based on kind of what we went through the first couple of weeks with him and, and, and telling him that, you know, we're not sure he's going to be normal or not. And, and in other places that I've been and, and other families, uh, you know, sometimes make, when we see that type of diagnosis that, that he had, they sometimes start to consider withdrawing support at that point, taking mm-hmm. him off the ventilator because their quality of life is projected to not be normal. And, mm-hmm. and I've seen parents really consider, and even some of our own nurses say, well, he's not going to be normal because he's had a, he's had bleeding in his brain. He's got all this fluid buildup. He's not going to be normal. Why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. And so I, I'll often get that question. And so my answer to them is, you know, this child, other child, you know, how many, you know, I tell them, how many child, babies have we taken care of in the NICU that we feel this way? And then they come back to us two years later and they're, walking and talking and you would never know mm-hmm. and I'm like well yeah I can think of a couple I'm like well then how do we know that's not going to be the case here mm-hmm. and so and they say well we don't I'm like well we don't so we have to you know let the parents know that these are the possibilities but give them the choice to, to, to say you know am I open to this type of life in my family and almost all of them will, will say yes I, I personally have never had anybody say no I don't want that mm-hmm. just take them off I remember, I remember that that specific case and the couple coming to me, mm-hmm. I sat outside at night and talked to them. This was right, you know, around Holy Week, Easter time, and just such a difficult choice mm-hmm. um, whether to to have this very complicated procedure that was, you know, maybe going to work, maybe not going to work. The, the having to weigh the the cost and the benefits, mm-hmm. um, but then I mean, even you were like, oh, we, we don't see how this is. The chances are so slim, mm-hmm. but a few weeks later, mm-hmm. and then everything. And we had, of course, we had a lot of people praying. I remember we had <laughs> yeah, nuns really. all over the world praying for him. So mm-hmm. it was the the power of prayer in that regards. Yeah. So what, what would you say though, like you know, as a a doctor in the NICU, are there certain common ethical choices that you find that you face uh, more than others, or what principles? double effect or you know that you tend to have to apply in these situations or is it just so different and varied for each um for each case no i mean i think the biggest thing that i always have to deal with is 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 these sort of things telling trying to tell the future you know trying to tell them how this baby's going to be in the future when i uh, really don't know you know Mm -hmm. and so so that that's where we kind of have to just just say okay you know it's not and I tell them you know 
it's not up to me. You know, I can do what I can do, but it's uh, up to, you know, it's, it's a higher power here. You know, God has the control of, of what's going on in here, and there's so much more involved of, of, of those sort of things. And so. But in general, I guess when you're dealing with these choices at the beginning of life versus the end of life, mm-hmm. because even though we don't know if it's going to work because of the, the projection of this long life and what it could be, there maybe is more of a desire to take risks, to do what is necessary. Uh, do you find that that influences your decision making? The hope for this full life? Um, yes. I th- yeah. I mean, I think I do. You know, I, I think, you know, all of us, I mean, when we're doing this, that that's our hope that, you know, everything's going to turn out the way it's supposed to in the sense mm-hmm. that we have a baby that's going to come back to us that in two years that's going to look normal and be fine. And, and so um, it's, you know, uh, and I, when I'm counseling parents, I, you know, and one of the things I learned and, and I, when I talk, you know, when I'm done reading and stuff about the ethics of the NICU is the one thing you can't do is take away their hope. You know, when you mm-hmm. take away their hope, it's hard for them to listen to you and, and listen to the, the rationale of why it is we need to do what it is we need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we need to do this, but don't give up hope that it still could turn out okay. Mm-hmm. You know, like like with our example, you know, let's let's get him referred, let's let the neurosurgeons take a look at him, but still have that hope that you know it still could be okay. You know? mm-hmm. And so uh, I think that that's the balance that I find um, sometimes a little bit that I've learned over the years that, that you really kind of have to have that with the parents. So we're talking here almost issues of life and death. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know with Down syndrome, and I'm sure there are other cases where parents, when the, the, the child, they realize that this may be the case, or they're going to have a child that's going to have Down syndrome or some other maybe genetic disorder that is, is not going to lead to immediate death or not a life and death decision. What do you see? Do couples struggle with that? How do you accompany them with that? Uh, yes. So you're not making a choice, a choice of life or death. You're just making a choice to embrace life as it's given to you. Yeah, uh, I've seen I've seen all the kind of examples where you know, like I said, I've had families who say, "Yeah, we're gonna love them. It's okay." You know, I understand. But I've had other parents who are very uh, <laughs> very resistant. You know, I've had a family. I remember I, I went to go. It was a very traumatic delivery. The baby they had no idea there was a problem with the baby. They obviously had some some genetic dis, uh, dysmorphic features and. Um, significant problems breathing and, and was very sick and, and dying at the point of delivery. Um, so I went to go talk to him immediately, and um, the first thing they said was, well, that's not my baby. You know, you got the wrong baby. You, you know, you're in the wrong room. And I was like, well, no, I saw the baby come out of you. It's, it's yours. <laughs> um, and so there was a lot of denial, and, and so I've, I've, I've had to deal with that. And, and so I think um, oftentimes it, that's the extreme that I've seen, you know, where they really deny that it's even their child, and then, and then, you know, they want to see the baby, and the baby doesn't look like them. They're like, well, I know it doesn't look like you because it's got a genetic problem. And so, uh, getting them to understand that and come to terms with that, it took a long, long time. When we ended up having to send that baby to a specialty hospital for specialty care. Um, but, um, but I think over time they finally embraced that. Okay, this is what what it is. This is what our life's going to be. But at the beginning, it was it was it was almost adversarial. They really did not even want me to talk to them about it. Um, and so, um, so yeah, I've seen that that extreme too, and, and it's it's difficult. It's very difficult because you have parents who who have this 
hope and this idea of the of what we call the Gerber baby. You know, everything's beautiful and perfect mm-hmm. at the delivery, and, and and you know that one to two, one to five percent chance where babies have difficulties in the delivery room, and I need to be there. Um, I have to tell them it's not that way. And mm-hmm. so, um, and in certain situations, most situations you can you're able to kind of help that baby and move that baby along, but when they have genetic an issue right away that you can tell things kind of stall right at that moment you have to say okay we have to live in this moment and see what what you know and you have to kind of understand that this is not normal you know and so it's very it's 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 earth shattering to them you know it changes their whole their whole world it goes upside down in a minute yeah and i'm sure that having you there as a doctor to, to give hope and compassion is important but i'm sure you've also experienced cases where maybe it's a Catholic couple and uh, priests were involved, either sort of there to give moral support or potentially there for baptisms. Mm-hmm. Uh, what role have you seen priests play in cases like this and, and what kind of suggestion or recommendations would you give to future priests uh, <laughs> about how to, how to be president and how to handle these decisions and also with, with these difficult ethical choices? Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen, um, you know, I've been at babies where they're 23 week deliveries, very, you know, uh, very uh, premature. And so those babies are very small. Their skin is very delicate. They're very, um, you know, it looks like, you know, the, the, the pictures you see of the, of the you know, the embryos in, in the womb still, they still look like little embryos. They're so small and delicate. So it could be very shocking to people. And, and I remember you know, uh, here, uh, having a baby, uh, we, we tried to resuscitate it 23 weeks and the baby just would not respond to anything we were doing. Uh, and so the mom held the baby and we, and we called, uh, our pastor here, uh, our associate pastor here mm-hmm. in wisdom at the time mm-hmm. at three o'clock in the morning. And, and, and he was, it made an impression on him and he was very, he came to baptize the baby. And I think the thing that shocked him the most was he, he came to me, he's like, this baby's so small. I was like, yeah, yeah. And so the, the shock, that can accompany, you know, the clergy that come in that aren't used to seeing this, you know, maybe seeing it in a book and in a picture of, of a pro-life, you know, picture that you'll see at the stages of the embryo. Now you see it right in front of you, and it, it, it can be shocking. Uh, and so it made an impression on him uh, having to do that, having to baptize that baby. Uh, I've had to baptize babies in that situation where mm-hmm. you just can't get somebody in there mm-hmm. at, at, that, at that moment. One of my best friends, his child was born with a lot of lack of oxygen, and, and we resuscitated that baby and got him back. And um, I had to baptize him and with with um, with Carrie, you know, right there with me, and um, we were both crying, you know. And, and John Paul is doing great now, his son. So, um, so yeah, those it makes an impression on you when you have to kind of kind of really come into that really quickly. And you know, that's my world, that's what I live in, but other people don't. And so when they come into that. It is very shocking, and so you kind of have to prepare yourself for, for the shock of seeing that. But knowing that that's somebody's child, and, and you know, and, and treating it the same way, treating that child the same way. Well, I, I guess this is a, a question for you, and it would actually incorporate both of you. I could imagine in some of these cases, you're dealing with life and death, you're dealing with suffering, particularly with children, and, and how do you? deal with that emotional strain and bringing it home and as a couple do you, do you, you talk through it how do you support each other because I, I can't I know as a priest when I've had to face horrible situations it really it, it, it weighs on you um, and, and particularly the death of a child 
yeah. or, or knowing that a child is born and it's going to have these really big developmental issues. How, how do you how do you cope with that as a doctor? Um, well, it's it's stressful in a sense because you you're trying to do everything you can, and you're I'm trying to you know really focus on that you know, and I, I know Laura knows when some when something's going on in the NICU when I have a really sick baby because. I'm distracted. I know I'm thinking about that baby, trying to figure out how to how to save that baby. And, and so, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, me kind of looking out in the space and me, you know, reading some books or calling the NICU at, you know, 11 o'clock at night or midnight when I can't sleep going, how's that baby doing? Well, you know, I had an idea, why don't you try this and, and things like that. Um, so I know that that weighs on Laura a little bit because I, I know she can, she can see that sometimes when it's going on. Yes. Just learning to recognize, I think, is the main thing for me. Learning to recognize when those times come. Um, maybe his need for space. Maybe his need for um, just, you know, extra concern, extra empathy. Um, I think primarily the first word that would come to mind, I would say, is just that need for extra space that he can, you know, that he can peacefully, you know, think through these issues explore all the options um, and, you know, just be there for when he is ready to have a conversation about it, if that's the way he needs to, you know, work that out for the better. One of the things that um, we talk about a lot in, in bioethics is, yes, you have certain hard and fast principles, but they're going to be applied in different situations at different times. And what's going to govern that is the virtue of prudence. Um, and, and a lot of prudence comes from, yeah, seeking counsel, prayer, reading, but a lot of it is, I think over time, you've been a doctor now for what, in the, in the NICU for close to 20 years. Close, yeah. Hopefully, I mean, as virtues go, you yeah. become more prudent as time has gone on and, and maybe may you see something differently as a, a more seasoned pediatrician from the beginning what are some of the changes that you've seen in your approach not only to ethical decisions but just working with and accompanying couples now than when you were uh what would you tell now you know dr matt cortez with a lot of hair um you know back 20 some odd years ago that what kind of lessons would you teach that doctor back then I think the, the biggest thing is not to, to jump to those conclusions too quickly. You know, like I said, there's there's a lot of times where you think, you know, the textbook says, you know, this baby's not going to have a normal life and not going to do well. And maybe you should give the parents the option to remove support. And I find as I get into this more and more, that thought is less and less coming into my mind because I'm like, you know, I don't know. You know, I've seen I've seen enough cases to where that's not the case, where the baby turns out to be normal. That that we should just kind of keep doing what we're doing and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and you know, of course, inform the parents. Yeah, these are the risks, but um, but not jump to that straight to that you know A to Z sort of thing and say, okay, well, uh, you know, um, we should just kind of give up here. You know, mm -hmm. and I guess you know, uh, you know, just not giving up as much as as I maybe had thought about at the very beginning of my career where I thought, you know, well, what am I doing, you know? Now, I, when I when people ask me that question and I think about it in my head, I'm like, well, I'm trying to save a baby's life. That's, that's what I'm trying to do and, and give them, a, you know, 
that chance that there may be some normal, you know, some mm-hmm. normalcy to the child's life. But even if there isn't, as a parent, you know, and a family, you know, and you know, seeing other families with 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 uh, children that have special needs, knowing how much joy they get from that, that you know, there's a burden to it, yes, but there's some joy to it. There is joy, you know. There, there's some peace and and whatnot that they have that um, that I've seen over the years. I'm like, well, you know. It's not an issue that I, I, I jump to as much anymore. Mm, more of a message of hope or a yeah. hopeful outlook. Hey, yeah. miracles happen. Stranger mm-hmm. things happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think parents appreciate that. They're like, you know what, you're, you're right. You know, And they'll come back to me, I'm so glad that you know you talked to me about that because he's normal now. <laughs> now it's one of the things that I, I don't know if it was one of the popes who said it or I read it, but on a pastor perspective, the priest ought to be a man of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, not false optimism, right. but of hope. And, and particularly in those situations, just the presence, the prayer, hey, we're, we're not giving up. We're going to press on, um, not only because God is all-powerful, but babies tend to be pretty resilient. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe much, they look delicate, but mm-hmm. they are there engineered to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and particularly, I think, the technology we have and in and, and a loving environment, uh, wonderful things can happen. So I guess when it comes to these miracle stories or even maybe really difficult trying stories uh, in your years, do a couple, two or three maybe examples stand out that might be really inspiring or or really, really impacted you that you still remember to today or you refer to? Um. I mean, I think the the biggest I think the biggest two I, I kind of mentioned, you know, is that you know friend's baby who was, didn't have a heartbeat for almost 20 minutes and, and resuscitating him and, and and you know I was doing my job and and you know and then having to go talk to one of my friends about their child who may not live or may not be normal and that was the hardest thing I ever had to do and mm-hmm. so it wasn't the taking care of the baby that was the hardest it was it was you know having to talk to somebody that I know personally about the possibility that a child may die and, mm-hmm. and uh, not be normal. And the baby was term. Yeah, and he was a full-term beautiful baby. No and so. reason to think there were no complications along the yeah. way. Mm-hmm. Um, just complicated delivery. Yeah, yeah, and then you know uh, another one where he was a 23-week baby who was very, very sick the whole time he was in the NICU, very small, very small. And we just kept saying, I don't know if he's gonna make it, I don't know if he's gonna make it. Ended up going, finally ended up going home on oxygen. And to this day, she sends us pictures every day on his birthday. He's completely normal, runs in place. Half of his family doesn't even know that he was born for 23 weeks. Really? So, so those those things, those are the ones that always kind of give me hope, you know, and kind of say, you know, I don't know, you know, um, yeah, it's it's so unpredictable. And and I've even seen babies that are have you know a very uneventful course in the NICU. You think, oh, they're going to be fine. And then they end up having some significant problem because you just don't know, mm-hmm. you know that, that they have some underlying issue. They're born at 32 weeks and they go home and they end up having cerebral palsy. And you're like, well, why did that happen? And I'm like, well, I, I don't know, you know. And so I kind of come to some of the conclusions that you know some things I don't know and I can't claim to understand why things happen the way they are. And so I do my best to kind of you know use the knowledge I have to help that baby survive. And then after that, you know, it's it's out of my hands, I do my best. Yeah, we, we've been discussing in class a lot of stuff on artificial reproductive technologies and IVF, and we were talking about this mm-hmm. yesterday, um, that you and some of your colleagues mm-hmm. 
have noticed that sometimes in IVF babies that there are certain challenges that you see that maybe you don't yeah. see in, in normal babies. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely see those babies tend to have a more slower transition to, to kind of coming out of the womb, you know, what we call transitioning to breathing air and doing all the things they're supposed to do. It just seems to be a little slower. Uh, uh, sometimes often need help with that. And feeding can be a little slower, and, and just everything seems to be a little slower to develop. And eventually it does, most of the time, unless there's some underlying issue. But it just takes a little more time for them to develop. But there's a lot of studies and, and whatnot that show, especially when you, when you puncture the ovary with, with a needle and you're you know, injecting the sperm, um, those babies have a lot more genetic dis, you know, uh, mutations as far as heart defects and things, because you're, you're piercing a cell and you don't know how that, you know, because those cells will divide and those cells will divide and how many cells will have those kind of, you know. Uh, it's like a really early trauma almost. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like a little gunshot wound. Yeah, <laughs> and then also the, if, if it's a, an embryo that's frozen, right. um, that's mm-hmm. that's also. Yeah, you know. Temperature should, trauma. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the stability of the cell is so, uh, so many things involved with it. I'm always amazed that everything turns out normally because you know, temperature, uh, environment, uh, nutrition, you know, prenatal care, all those things are very important. So, so when you have an embryo that's frozen or, or you know, um, a sperm that's frozen, how is it going to function normally to unite and actually have a baby that's normal and mm-hmm. ha- not have some, you know, some, some repercussions? And so, mm-hmm. you know, there are some studies that show there are s- some issues with those babies, especially when there's, you know, some piercing of the one of the things that we've been discussing is is IVF as a process is not cheap. Right. Um, and so I mean, working at a hospital, um, I'm sure you see patients, mothers, parents of different sort of economic levels and, and different demographics. Um, I'm sure a number of them possibly Medicaid, uh, um, how, how do you how do you think and this is a much broader like a social justice issue um, what responsibility does a government have um, or potentially even private insurance companies have to be able to pay for and provide health care uh, possibly life-saving health care to, to these children I mean I think uh, I think it's important I mean I think you know from I guess from a baby standpoint, having them be supported through Medicaid and all that is important because otherwise, you know, this technology is expensive. You know? Yeah, right. so, I mean, you know, everything that we do in there is, I mean, if we have a 23-week baby that, you know, is discharged close to their due date, you know, their overall hospital bills in the millions mm-hmm. of dollars. And so, uh, you know, with a lot of those being, you know, Medicaid, you know, most practices in neonatology. 70 to 80 percent of the NICU babies will be, you know, Medicaid. You know, I, I think because there is some socioeconomic issues before the prenatal care, the health, all those things yeah. lead to a little more premature birth. So you end up having more of those uh, type of moms in the NICU. Not always, but, but mm-hmm. a lot of it is. A good portion of it is. And so I think it's, uh, I think it's important to help them out, and but also help them get the prenatal care on the front end too. Trying mm-hmm. to help them, you know, have a better, you know environment for their baby when you know in the prenatal stages mm-hmm. uh, or the antenatal stages um, 
so I think that and you know supporting them through their NICU stay is important because they you know these children will end up, you know that's the other issue with the ethics of neonatology is people say well how do you you know have all these babies that are you know a burden to society and, and in reality is majority of them are not a burden to society and it's rare that there we have that type of situation uh, from the definition of a burden of society whatever, whatever that is um, and um, so that that strain on the uh, on the economic system of healthcare, I think is pretty low as far as what we you know what we do in the NICU mm -hmm. uh, I think a majority of it we have you know 98% are good, you know, babies that are able to live a life and do what they need to do and, you know, pay their taxes and, and do all the stuff that society wants them to do. Um, so, so I think I don't have an ethical issue with that. I think it's, a, I think it's something that, that, you know, it embodies, I think, the overall socioeconomic issues that, you know, the, the world kind of deals with. Yeah, I mean, even if, if so, again, I'm not saying this at all, but, you know, these issues of, of justice and what a society owes to Poor and, and particularly as Catholics, there's a preferential option for the poor. It seems that because the governments are willing to, uh, through these, these Medicaid programs, uh, governmental programs, spend millions of dollars, mm -hmm. that even the virtue that's governing this, even on the governmental level, is not so much justice, but hope. Mm -hmm. I mean, they say, hey, we're going to invest this money because, yes, it's just, it's the right thing to do, right. but also the hope, the chance that this child is going to. To grow up and, and be a, mm -hmm. a valuable member to right. the society and the culture. So, I mean, there's so many other things to reflect on, yeah. and we've been talking a lot. Uh, if we had our wine, we probably wouldn't talk more. Um, <laughs> but you know, in speaking to maybe giving some last words and speaking to this group of young men who are going to, God willing, be priests and, and do a lot of this work, and that's something in our discussion is realize so many instances in my mind, I would say probably two to one um, of having to be with a, a couple making this ethical decisions with children rather than the end of life. Now granted, it may be because I was a campus minister for half of my, my priesthood, uh, I dealt with young more often than not. Um, what kind of words of wisdom, encouragement, um, advice would you give to priests? I mean, I think the most important thing is, you know, when, whenever I've had to, to have bad news delivered to families and, uh, and you know maybe even hand them their childs to die which is the hardest thing I ever have to do but having that support system having somebody that they can call and just say hey I'm three in the morning can you come baptize my child can you or just be with me to help me make this decision or help me um, uh, hold my baby you know and just kind of be present and and, and um, give them the hope but you know also you know give them you know the presence of, of, of being you know the clergy there to, to show that they're walking through them through this difficult time with them because it is a very difficult time it's it's the hardest thing you know it's the hardest thing I have to do in my in my job is, is to deal with the baby that that dies but for that family it, it's it's the hardest thing to see you know a child die you know and die in their arms or, or die right after delivery um, which you know um, you know there's a lot of ministries out there that that help with that but but having their own somebody they know you know can come in to help them and support them not just their grandmother or their friend but you know the clergy that can kind of help them walk through it i yeah. think is important and I, I told before that it's not what you say it's just your presence 
-hmm. Just being there at three o'clock in the morning speaks more than anything you'll ever say because there's nothing you really can say. Yeah, yeah. I think we all, we always try to search for the right words, and I, you know, the nurse asked me, "What do you say? What do you say?" I'm like, "Well, you really don't need to say a whole lot. You know, you just need to be there for them and let them know they did their best. The baby, you know, we did our best. The baby fought, and and, and this is this is you know what what it is. You know, this is the outcome that that um, we have to to deal with, and that." God is with us, and, and, and we can only just, just walk with him and, and see where this leads us. I heard I heard it, someone, uh, the little phrase, don't just stand there, do something, inverted. Mm-hmm. Yes. So don't just do something, stand there. Mm-hmm. Stand there and just be, be present. Um, I think assuring these couples, too, that they have graces within their marriage that they mm-hmm. can tap into that will carry them through this difficulty because God did not give them this cross without the graces to handle it Mm -hmm. um we've seen a family in our parish you know that had a large family biologically and still adopted two special needs children and to this day i'm still not sure but that's only through the grace of god Mm -hmm. Uh, you know god though had a plan for those children Mm -hmm. to be in that family Mm -hmm. and that they would be able to manage those kids extreme special needs and all the various ways that they came about and it is it is awesome and, yeah. and and tying back to what we discussed earlier a extreme case of just the vulnerability of our human existence uh the need for for love and for care and for that support and the fact that we all depend on each other particularly as catholics that we care for the weakest and the most vulnerable in our in our culture and our society and not only do we owe that to others Justice, uh, but it, it is a powerful witness when we see. Oh, you know, look, look at how, particularly in a, a culture now that is, is perfection, and we all want to be Hollywood stars, and mm-hmm. there's the potential for genetic engineering. Um, the fact that hey, we accept children as gifts; they're not products. Um, it's power. It can be a powerful witness, a burden, but. Uh, one of the things I, I've told the guys from this essay I read that had a big impact on me um, from the biophysicist Gilbert Mylander, he's talking about, you know, when he approaches death, there's, you hear so often people make the argument for assisted suicide. I don't want to be a burden on my loved ones. And he said, I want to be a burden on my loved ones um, because I've done this all this for them. I would hope that they would want to support me and that in this language of vulnerability and dependence, we are all burdens on each other. We should want to be able to carry each other's burden. In fact, burden, the root comes from to bear a child. Um, yes. And that there shouldn't be a negative connotation, but a positive connotation that we support each other and we be, become stronger as individuals, as families and community. Yes. So thanks for your, your sure. work and for, for sitting and having these conversations. I know that uh, the seminarians will benefit from them and yeah. I really appreciate it. Uh, so Matt and Laura, thank you all so much. And, um, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate your witness. Excellent.